We have to go after transformation deep within our own lives so that we will have a spiritual heritage and legacy that the next generation will have value for, will desire and want. They'll stop looking at us going, man, whatever, whatever that was, I want none of it. That was like hypocrisy. That was ridiculous. That was acting one way on Sunday and, 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 and totally different on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We got to stop that. We got to start being real with our kids and with the next generation about our own challenges with faith, about, about what has been difficult in our own pursuit of Jesus, being real and honest, showing that we love God, but we're flawed that this isn't easy, not trying to have it all together. And hopefully we will, we will uh, display a type of spirituality that they will want to mimic someday. We'll leave it behind as a legacy. It's all about transformation. Hey, we are in week four of a teaching series called Family Matters. Uh, man, loving this series just, just because, uh, uh, how many of y'all know that the family really matters a lot? Like we've been talking about the importance of family um, you know, um, whether, whether you like it or not, you know, whether you come from a good family or a challenged family, like, like family's important, especially when it comes down to who we will eventually become later on in life and into adulthood. Am I right? Um, we all know, I think, that, that, that family has a profound way of shaping our life, um, shaping us into who we eventually become. And, um, and, and so family is very, very important. Family really does matter. Um, and I, I really hope that uh, Apple has some neat new updates in this software. So, um, so anyway, uh, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian who lived during World War II. Um, he's known for his resistance to um, the Nazi dictatorship. He was arrested by the Gestapo um, for uh, what they accused him uh, was of, of being a part of an assassination plot to uh, kill Hitler. Uh, so he was thrown in a concentration camp for many years where he would lead Bible studies. He would lead church services in these concentration camps. He, uh, he, he actually wrote uh, several books um, that we have and, and, and uh, are, are, are incredibly influential today uh, from concentration, a concentration camp. Um, eventually, he would be executed uh, for his involvement in trying to bring down the Third Reich. He was executed uh, about a month before Germany would surrender to the Allied forces. Uh, just crazy, and uh, he was hung to death there uh, that day, and uh, he's left an incredible legacy, uh, one that, that, that uh, you know, uh, pastors, uh, you know, Christians, really, uh, of, of any denomination uh, value and have been influenced by, and in his book, uh, Le uh, Letters and Papers uh, from Prison, uh, he he asks this really interesting question. He says, he says, who is Christ for us today? And it's a, it's a really profound thought because he, what, he's, what he's doing is he's saying, not, not who is Christ for them 2,000 years ago or who is Christ for them 500 years ago, but in our moment, in our time, and in our context, who is Christ for us today? It's a question we all have to kind of wrestle with. We all have to kind of, kind of get around and say like, you know, regardless of our faith and our beliefs and any of that stuff, who is Christ for me today? I think that when I, you know, when I look at that question, I, I think you could add a few words that, that make it um, even that much more powerful and put some of the responsibility on us. Um, I think an equally important question would be, who are we to be for Christ today? So who is Christ for us today, number one? And then who are we to be for Christ Today, so you know, my job as as a pastor, um, my, my job or my responsibility is is this: it is to help form you into the image of Jesus. Okay, that's that's it. That's what I do. That that is my job to help form you into the image of Jesus. Now, your job or your responsibility is to form yourself or to help form yourself or your family into the image. Of Jesus. Okay, that is what we are here to do. In fact, Paul talks about this in, in Galatians chapter 4. He says some really profound words. Uh, Galatians 4.19, he says, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. It's really profound. 
He's, he's writing to this church in Galatia, uh, this church that he had founded. He had planted this church, people that he knew, people who were falling away from the faith. And he is, he's saying, I'm going back through this again. It's like I have to give birth to you all over again. He's saying, I'm, 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 in, I'm in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And what he is saying here, it's certainly a perspective that a pastor should have of the people that they are entrusted to lead, but I also think it is a perspective um, that, that can apply to us as mothers and fathers, as husbands and as wives. And this particular uh, perspective that, that Paul has is that we are still in the pains of childbirth. In other words, the job is not finished, right? The, the job is not finished when our kids are in church regularly, or the job is not finished when they finally reach an age of being able to make their own decisions about Jesus. No, no, no. Paul is saying, like, like the job's not finished. I'm still in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, until Christ is formed in them. And this is the vision of a family legacy that we have to hold to. I, I believe this with all of my heart. And uh, I realize that, that not everybody in here this morning is in the process of raising a family. I, believe, I, I realize that there are, there are many of us in here who maybe have already done our tour of duty. We've already raised a family. And, and uh, so some of this could even bring on some guilt and shame because you're like, man, I wish I could go back and change some things. None of that is, is intended today. We all are a part of a family. We all are a part of the family of God. We all still have the opportunity through the power of the Holy Spirit to, to make radical changes and differences as long as there is breath still in our lungs. And, uh, and we all have people that we are influential over uh, that, that I believe um, God wants to use us to affect uh, in, in this way. And so the vision of a family legacy is this, right? Until Christ is formed in them. Not until they graduate or hit 18, I did my job. It's until Christ is formed in them. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Until Christ is formed in our kids. Until Christ is formed in our grandkids. Where they're not just attending church, but they are deeply formed into the image of Jesus. How many of you know that those two things are incredibly different? The family legacy. So a legacy... As you know, it's essentially what we're going to leave behind. So, you know, it's things like our character is part of your legacy. Your reputation is part of your legacy. Your wealth, your estate, that's part of your legacy. That's what carries on after you are gone. And I want you to hear me this morning. If you're taking notes, it's a really big thought. You cannot leave behind what you do not possess. You cannot leave behind what you do not possess. So, in other words, like I can't leave my kids money that I did not save. Are you, are you with me there? Like, I cannot leave them a good family name that I did not work to create. And on a spiritual level, this is true as well. Like if we are interested in having children and grandchildren who have been deeply marked by Jesus, deeply formed into his image, then we must become people who are deeply formed into his image as well. So that we can, we can leave behind something that we fought hard to possess. It's a really big deal. Quaker author uh, Parker Palmer, whom I've quoted uh, many times over the years, you may be familiar with his name uh, because of that, but he writes uh, in his book uh, called a, a Hidden Wholeness about the challenges that farmers once faced when extreme winter storms would come, uh, something that we are very much accustomed to here in the Midwest, right? He writes about how these earlier generations especially would face these winter storms or these blizzards uh, that would come upon them without much warning. They would come with great ferocity to the point that even these farmers who were very familiar with their surroundings and very familiar with their land would find themselves in precarious and danger, dangerous situations. These blizzards had, had a way of becoming so intense that they could conceal their home. These farmers would have trouble getting to their homes because of the nature of the storm. Palmer writes that because of the unpredictable nature of these storms, Farmers would have to tie a rope from the barn to the back door of the house so that when the storm came, they could follow that rope and get home safely. And that without this rope, these, these farmers and, and, and members of their family would at times freeze to death, disoriented by their inability to see even their own hand in front of their face. They would wander in circles, 
lost sometimes in their own backyards. And so if they ever lost their grip on the rope, it would become nearly impossible for them to find their way home. Some would, would freeze within feet of their own back door, never realizing how close they were to safety. I think it's a real powerful image because I think the point uh, here is that in order for these farmers and their family members to find home, in order for them to survive, they had to be tethered to something. They had to be tied to something. Now, as the people of God, we confess that God is that rope, right? And we hold on to him. We hold on to him in the middle of life's storms. We hold on to him in, in difficult challenges. Like, we confess. We know that. But, but I want you to, like, take that thought a, a step further because it's easy just to be like, well, God's that rope. But I believe that we are also called to be that rope for our families and for the watching world. We are to keep our families tethered to God. We are to be, we are to be this, this rope as well. We are to be the ones who keep other people tethered to God. Because whether you realize it or not, man, so many people have lost their way, many of them in your own family, and you, you know it, right? Like, the times we are in are not necessarily easy, especially the last few years with the convergence of, you know, COVID and political hostility and racial hostility and all that stuff. It's just like, a, it's just wild out there. That's a, like, that's a, pretty unique storm to live through. And those three things are way beyond the normal stormy conditions of everyday life where, you know, people are, are, are going and trying to just, just uh, create a healthy marriage or they're trying to raise kids in the way of Jesus or they're trying to negotiate their differences with the people that they love. There's just a lot going on to try to figure those things out. And the question I think, I think that has to enter into our mind and that we have to ask and try to answer this morning is how do we remain tethered to God? How do we do this? Like, we know that we need to be tethered to God, but how do we remain tethered to God? How do we become a people for this particular generation? How do we keep our family tethered to God? Man, I've shared statistics with you in the last couple, couple weeks. Uh, Barna Research Group talking about the number of young people growing up in church who are actively involved, and by the time they get to their freshman year of college, they've completely abandoned the faith. Like, like, how do we keep our families tethered to God? I want to look at the words of Peter, 1 Peter uh, 2, 9 through 12. These are very, very, very famous verses, and, and some of you are going to be very uh, familiar with them, and I hope to kind of give you maybe a, a, a unique twist or perspective on them uh, today. Paul writes and says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wondrous light, or wonderful light. I went King James on you. Uh, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, I love verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us, when he returns. Now, this is powerful, powerful scripture right here. And, it, and it's good, and it, like you read it, and it kind of can, can even just be encouraging to you, and you're like, oh man, that's awesome, that's great. But there's such, such good truth, such good meaning to this that we can maybe miss. Because when Paul describes the church here, he's using some really powerful words. He says, first, he says, we are a chosen people. This is, what, this is what Peter says, right? He says, we are a chosen people. In other words, you did not choose God, but God chose you, right? That, that's an that's a actual verse in the Bible, right? Like, you, you did not choose God, God chose you. And what this means is that God has, has had his eye on you individually. He's had his eye on us as a church family, for sure, but he has had his eye on you individually, Think about that. Of all the people in the world, God chooses you. His hand is upon you, right? His anointing is upon you. God has chosen you to be in this generation, to be a part of the family that you were born into. And for some of you, to be, part, to be a part of the family that you are now raising. And in this moment in time, what Peter is getting at is he's saying, you are chosen. There is purpose and destiny on your life. For this moment in history, for this family that you're a part of, you are in fact chosen. 
And he goes on, right? And he says, he says number two, he says, he says that we are a royal priesthood. That's, that's just interesting. What does that even mean? What does that even mean? So I get that I'm chosen. I didn't choose God. God chose me, that there is purpose, there's destiny on my life. Like I, I get that, and, and, and that, that, that's necessary. But how am I a part of a royal priesthood? So the role of a priest in the New Testament or the Old Testament was, was simply to help people find their way to God. That's the role of a priest in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Now, some of you may have like a different idea of what a priest is based on how you grew up in church or whatever, but the, the, the I mean, just distilling it down to basic words, uh, it is to help people find their way to God. That's the purpose of a priest. Peter tells us that this is who we are, that every single one of us is tasked, tasked with being a part of this like holy, royal priesthood. We're tasked with helping people find their way to God. Now, this is where you gotta take it a step further. Like, so what this means is that in your home or in your family, you are the priest of your home. You're the priest of your home. In other words, there is a calling on your life to help the people in your home, the people in your family, find their way to God. There is a calling on your life. You are a part of this royal priesthood. That's what Peter's saying to us. We cannot assume that just bringing them to a church a couple times a month is enough. You're the priest of your home. Not me. Not anyone else. You're the priest of your home. My job is to come alongside you. It's to, it's to help you grow into that role. It's to assist you. But it's your job to walk that out. It's your job to live into that by helping your family and others find their way to God. You are a chosen people and a royal priesthood. Amen? That's good. Then uh, Peter also says this. He says that we are a holy nation. A holy nation. It's interesting, right? Like, like, so a nation, if you think about that. We live in the nation of the United States of America. So Paul says you're chosen by God. You're set apart as a royal priesthood and as a holy nation. In other words, like we operate by a different kind of constitution. We operate by a different kind of power and authority. We operate by a different set of principles and values. He's saying here, like, as a holy nation, we are God's special possession and that we are called to be peculiar, called to be different, a different kind of people. We will go King James for a second. First Peter 2.9, and uh, this will be fun. Uh, it says, but ye, ye, right? are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation. And he says, a peculiar people. That ye should shew forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So he's saying like we are to be a different kind of people. And our families are to be different kinds of families. Confounding the world around us, there's nothing like it. And I think that that's part of where we've lost our witness in this, in this world, right? Where like marriages in the church look really at times no different than, than marriages outside the church. At least the divorce rate's the same. Like, like, like traumatic things going on in, in, in our homes that, that really are, are, are not much different than what's going on in other homes. Like, like Paul is saying, look, or Peter's saying, look, like you are to be peculiar. People are to look at you and go, man, that's odd, that's strange. Why are they doing it? that way, but for whatever reason, they're attracted to that. They want that because we're living by a, set, a different set of standards, a different set of values, a different set of, of uh, morals. And the question then comes down to this, like, okay, I get it. Like, like I'm chosen. I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a part of this priesthood. I think I get that. I got to lead people to God. I'm a part of a holy nation. That means, that means like, I'm really not, not, my citizenship really isn't here. My citizenship is up there. But then, but then how do we live into this reality? How do we do this? How do we actually live into this? Because every generation brings with it its challenges and its opportunities. Every generation brings with it its particular stories and its particular obstacles. And the question is, how do we live into this moment? How do we live into this moment? Like, who are we to be for Christ today in this moment in time? How do we do this? As we think about what it means to follow Jesus and as we think specifically about the family, I want us to think about uh, the image of the iceberg. You can put that on the screen. Um, it's a fascinating image, isn't it? 
It's, it's, it's incredible. Um, I think it's a great picture of what Jesus wants to do in our lives. I think this is a great picture of what Jesus wants to do in our families and what he wants them to look like. And I think that in order to have a life that is really deeply formed into the image of Jesus, to have a family that is deeply formed into the image of Jesus, that there must be more to us than the eye can see. There must be a whole lot more to us below the surface than there is above the surface. I think in order to leave behind a spiritual legacy in our families, we have to personally go after transformation beneath the surface in our own lives. We have to understand that Jesus is not interested in our behavior modification. He's not interested in our theological assent to, to specific doctrines. He's after transformation that exists beneath the surface, that happens beneath the surface. In 1997, uh, the movie Titanic quickly became a must-see classic. Uh, everybody's gotta be familiar with this, right? Like, and uh, if you were young enough, uh, you remember uh, having to like, you know, close your eyes, you know, in certain, certain spots of the movie, but a uh, uh, must-see classic. It told the story not only of Jack and Rose, but obviously uh, the story of the famous ocean liner, colliding, uh, ocean liner colliding with an iceberg and tragically sinking into the depths of the sea. Now, when you watch this movie, there is a sharp contrast that seems to exist on the ship after it has hit the iceberg. On the upper decks of the ship, there is all of this abundance, there's all of this wealth, there's all of this joy, festivities, people carrying on like uh, nothing is wrong, like, like everything's fine, and yet in the lower decks of the ship, right, where, where th th there is utter chaos as water is pouring into the whole of the ship, um, it's the exact opposite of what is happening in the upper decks. Down below in the lower decks is utter chaos, fear, uh, people are dying, right? They're, they're getting blown away by, by like, all that water, and people up above have no idea what's really going on. And as we all know, like, as the movie progresses, the issues in the lower deck begin to rise to the surface until the Titanic eventually plummets towards the ocean floor. I want to just say this to you today, um, this thought here. If we, if we don't take time to go to the lower decks of our lives... It's only a matter of time before those issues will begin to surface. And, and I'm telling you that I'm not, I'm not preaching at you, okay, today. I want you to know this. I'm, I'm talking to myself. Like, I have, I have lived this out in, in recent months of taking time intentionally to, to, to travel to the lower decks of my life to figure out what is going on, what is there, what is there that was in my dad's generation and my grandpa's generation and my great-grandpa's generation? Why is that in me? What is going on? Why is there what, what seems to be a fracture? And how do we get this thing mended? What is going on? Why am I battling all this stuff internally? Why is this stuff starting to leak out when I'm, when I'm under pressure? What is going on? And, and I, just, I just believe that if we don't take the time to go to the lower decks of our lives, uh, those things will, will begin to leak out. It'll, it'll, it's only a matter of time. Jesus, listen to me, he wants to transform the parts of us that exist beneath the surface. And the iceberg gives us a great visual of the kind of transformation that Jesus wants to get at in our lives. And this is why at our church, man, like I love you, but like you come here each week, essentially you enter here at your own risk because we don't really got time to mess around. You know, I'll try to be funny and throw some humor in when I have a voice that is cooperating and, um, and, and whatever, but uh, you know, like essentially you enter here at your own risk. Each week we're gonna invite you to go places that you don't necessarily wanna go on your own. You know, each week we're gonna invite you to ask questions of yourself that you would rather not ask. Like I just, I'd rather avoid that, I'd rather not, not talk about that. And because here's the deal, we have a strong belief that Jesus wants to transform us deep beneath the surface of our lives. And only when that happens are we positioned properly, hear me, to leave behind a spiritual legacy to that next generation, a spiritual legacy that they will have any value for. Man, I, I can tell you, like, talking to my grandfather before he passed away, he pastored for over 40 years. He would talk to me about, like, dear saints that he pastored for decades who 
were in the church every time the doors were open. Every time. Like, like brother so-and-so was here and that. And, and he would, his heart was broken over the number of families that were consistently bringing their kids to church, but they weren't consistently seeing their kids formed into the image of Jesus. And uh, he said there were so many of them just not even, not even close to following God. We have to go after transformation deep within our own lives so that we will have a spiritual heritage and legacy that the next generation will have value for, will desire and want. They'll stop looking at us going, man, whatever, whatever that was, I want none of it. That was like hypocrisy. That was ridiculous. That was acting one way on Sunday and, 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 and totally different on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We got to stop that. We got to start being real with our kids and with the next generation about our own challenges with faith, about, about what has been difficult in our own pursuit of Jesus, being real and honest, showing that we love God, but we're flawed, that this isn't easy, not trying to have it all together. And hopefully we will, we will uh, display a type of spirituality that they will want to mimic someday. We'll leave it behind as a legacy. It's all about transformation. A quote worth repeating, I've, I've said it, this is the third time now, so maybe you'll have it memorized. Rollheiser, Catholic, Catholic uh, theologian, he says, whatever pain is not transformed is transferred. Whatever pain is not transformed is transferred. Right, so, so you, I mean, think about it. Think about all the things in your story, in your journey. Think about different traumatic moments and events. Think about what people have done to you or what you've done to yourself. Think about it. Anything that is not transformed, meaning it's not healed, it's not processed, God hasn't had the chance. You haven't given Jesus the opportunity to go to the deeply rooted areas of your life that are broken. He says, he's saying here that those things will eventually be transferred to other people, primarily those in your own home. Man, when I was a kid, um, my family took a trip to Yosemite National Park out in California. Um, Grew up on uh, the West Coast, and so uh, we went there one year um, to see the redwoods. Anybody, anybody seen the redwood trees? They're fascinating. Um, if you've never seen the redwoods, like, you've got to see them. They're, they're unbelievable. They are the tallest living things on planet Earth. Uh, they can literally grow to be 30 stories high and three stories wide. Uh, there are some pictures you can find online of people actually, them carving out uh, a hole in the middle and driving a car through the middle of the tree. It's, it's pretty fascinating. What, what's amazing about the redwoods is that they grow to this height. They're enormous. But that individually, they do not have deep roots. What they have is a root system. Their root system can go out over, over 100 feet wide. You think about that, though. That's, that feels wide to us, but 100 feet compared to 30 stories high, it's really not that wide. It can go about 150 feet deep, which, which, you know, I don't know. That's not like, it's going a lot higher than it is going deeper, right? And so uh, what happens is, is you end up with this one 30-story high tree with all of these relatively shallow roots. And then over there, you got another 30-story high tree with, with relatively shallow roots. And what happens is their roots begin to intertwine with each other, right? They, they, they tie into each other, and, and it allows them to soar high into the sky and to withstand storms that come their way. So you'll never see a redwood tree by itself. In fact, if, if someone were to try to, try to plant a wed, red, redwood tree, I don't even, yeah, uh, it, it would not last. It would not get this big because it, it, it has to tie into something else. It has to tie in at a, at a root level to another tree in order to be strong enough to withstand the storms. And so when I think about that, I think about my own life. And I think about what kind of root system do I need? Not just like, like, like a root, like I need, okay, I need to be rooted here. But like what kind of system, root system do I need in order to really live, leave behind the kind of legacy and the kind of spiritual uh, life that, that my kids are going to want to carry on? And um, I, th I think like this, I think we need, to, we need to ask this, like which roots are we going to need for this particular moment? Which, what, what are the roots? What are the roots that we're going to need to hold together and intertwine so that both the church and our families can soar high into the sky as a witness 
for Jesus Christ in this generation. So what I want to do here uh, is just share with you some roots that I think that we must have in our individual families and also within the family of God. Um, And I just picked three of them. I kind of just lifted three that I thought were good. There's got to be plenty more. Um, So you can obviously add to them. But I think the first root you have to have, again, when it comes down to being intentional about your own legacy and what you leave behind and your family and your marriage and your life and, and, and walking with Jesus well, like, you have to have, number one, first root is a sacred pace. You have to have a sacred pace. And what I mean by this is a sacred pace is where you are willing to slow down your life in order to catch up to God. That's really what this means. Like, so many of us, like, we're, we're, we struggle to find God because he's, like, way back there because we're running our lives so fast. Like, like, we're way out in front of him, and you have to be willing to slow down your life in order to catch up to God. I think the challenge for so many families is the glaring absence of an intentional, sacred pace. Um, I could argue that, that one of the greatest challenges to the spiritual formation of our life, the spiritual formation of our families, is excessive busyness, distraction, and restlessness. So when you add excessive busyness, in other words, we're going here, we're going there, we're going there, with distraction, so our margins are filled with a device in front of our face. And then restlessness, like we, our minds just aren't shutting off and we can't sleep. Like, like I mean, talk about a recipe for unlimited disaster. And we forget that the spiritual calling on our life is to be people who are with God. It's to be with God. To have, listen to me, a firsthand spirituality with God. That is your primary spiritual calling, to have a firsthand spirituality with God. Man, listening to a, a sermon is great. I, I highly recommend it. Um, it's good stuff. Listening to a podcast is good. It's great. But man, like, These are secondhand, not firsthand. And when this is all we have, we end up living off of the spirituality of someone else. When we lack a sacred pace, hear me, hear me. When you lack a sacred pace, firsthand spirituality is impossible to maintain. It's not possible. There's no time for that. And so if you want to change some of the things in your life, you want to change some of the things in your family. If you want to establish a spiritual heritage and a legacy of worth, you have to cultivate a firsthand spirituality where you really know Jesus yourself. Like you really know him. You want to be with him. You long for that time with him and his presence. Like you are, uh, I mean, in, in some ways, you're not, you're not shamed at all, but you're, you're disappointed or you're, 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 you notice when the days begin to stack of not having that time with him and you just want to get back to that time of developing your firsthand spirituality. And then, and then once this happens, right, as a, again, as a royal priesthood or as the priest of your home, you then lead the different members of your family to cultivate a firsthand spirituality for themselves. Man, that's really good stuff. So you know. I want to write that down. You're taking notes. Uh, the quality you desire of your life and family will only emerge from a sacred pace. Think about like the vision. You think about like what you want, what you really want. If you were to like draw it out, like for your family, for your life, like it only emerges from a sacred pace. The only way you get there. We have to slow ourselves down so that we can discern the very presence of God in our life. Like, like, some people are like, I don't even know where God is. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a reason. Like, like, like there is nothing about our lives today that, that make it very easy to discern the presence of God. We have to make sure that God is not relegated to the margins, but he's brought back into the center. Sacred pace is all about rest. It's all about Sabbath. It's about prioritizing what really matters most. 
It's having faith to believe truly that you can get done in six days with God. What, what you were convinced for so long, you, you could only get done in seven. It's, it's believing truly that his way and his design for human flourishing is better than what, than what we believe. It is, it is so uh, prophetic too, like taking time to stop and to rest. You know that when Jesus comes back someday, there will be plenty of us just that leave work behind that it doesn't get finished? Yeah, right? I mean, I, right? I sure hope. I don't have to bring that stuff with me. Like, I love you guys, but I'd like to leave, leave like, some of this behind me. You know, like, when, the, when that day comes, at least. Um, you understand that? Like, like, like so, so a Sabbath or an intentional rest, it's prophetic. It's saying, look, like, I, I'm preparing for what's to come. And so I am stopping, even though I got stuff to do, and I know I got stuff to do, I am stopping. I am setting it aside. I am, I am laying it down prophetically because I know that like what my life is, will look like one day, he will come back and I will leave my stuff anyway behind. And I, and I am saying like it is okay to not have everything done. We, we are addicted to outcomes. We're addicted to accomplishing. It's prophetic. It's saying, look, I, I, don't need to, I don't need to find my identity in checking off every box. I need to slow down. I need to have a sacred pace. I need to stop my life. I need to believe that God has, is the one who knows best uh, for how my life should be ran. And when he modeled this as like a, really a creational ordinance where he took his own rest, I probably should as well. I gotta have a sacred pace if I wanna make it to the end. Amen? Okay, yeah, I think it all made sense. I, um, none of that was notes, so it was all free. Um, so the question is like, what's your pace like? What's your pace like? Is it helping you develop the kinds of roots you need and that your family needs in order to thrive. Second root, um, emotional health. If I, was, if I were to look at the root system that I need to leave behind something of value from a spiritual perspective, I need to, uh, I need to have emotional health as part of, part of my root system. So I need a sacred pace, but I also need emotional health. Um, not taking a jab at anyone, but you realize that most people are not emotionally healthy. Um, and, and sometimes, a lot of that's probably like to no fault of their own. You know, like life has a way of negatively affecting our emotional health. It just does, like trauma and pain, heartache, uh, I mean, ridiculous tragedy, things that we go through. All of these things contribute to people living their lives without the necessary emotional health needed to progress or to mature in Jesus. So we just, we just sort of stall out we no longer progress. I, I mentioned emotional health because um, this, again, this is where we hold on to this truth that Jesus desires to transform every area of our life and not just part of it. Or not, not even just like most of it. He especially wants to transform the parts of us that live beneath the surface. So it's our inner life or our emotional life. It's why we are the way we are, why we, why we seem to be programmed a certain way. Pete Scazzaro has thoroughly addressed this concept in his, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It is, it is life-changing, and I encourage you to read it. Um, but he talks about in his book about how uh, emotional health and spiritual health are inseparable, that they're joined at the hip, that, that you can't have one without the other, that it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Like, you can't, you just can't do it. And... What he's tried to make clear is this idea that we can know all there is to know about the Bible, right? You can, you can, you can, you can know everything there is. You, you, can have, you can have degrees upon degrees. You, you, you can know everything there is to know about the Bible, but if you don't know how to navigate the terrain of your interior life, like why you are the way you are, the problems that come from our family of origin, the generational challenges that many of us carry, things like anger and sadness, things like anxiety, we will stall out and we will no longer progress towards spiritual maturity. A lot of people like to call Christians hypocrites, you know, and I, I think maybe there's reason for that and good reason for that at times. Um, but I think it's more likely that they are simply emotionally immature. Uh, like, and the immaturity is preventing them from making Jesus look good to the people around them. I think this happens all the time. I think what, what a lot of people... Uh, um, assume is hypocrisy is really 
um, emotional immaturity. It's, 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 it's deeply loving Jesus, but being emotionally immature that we don't know how to like uh, integrate the two. And so, so often we like, we lash out or we do things, we say things that just aren't great. It's like, well, that's not what Jesus would do. It's like, well, yeah, obviously, like this is still my old stuff and it hasn't been dealt with and it still exists. And so I think, I think it's really critical. Like if we wanna leave behind a kind of spirituality that is worth the next generation carrying, we have to evaluate what's going on on the inside in our interior lives. And so I think a lack of emotional health can mean that you can, man, you can serve all you want. You can deeply love the Lord. But if you don't know how to navigate conflict well, or like the tensions in your life or the tensions in our world and you're unable to sit with people in their struggles, you know, in a non-anxious way without getting super uh, triggered, you know, like it's an indicator that there's some, you know, emotional immaturity. And what happens is our emotional unhealth then begins to bleed into our spiritual health. And this is why we have to slow down, right? We have to slow down to pay attention to the ways in which our families of origin have shaped us. We have to pay attention to our reactions and the messages that have formed our lives. And I, and I just, I just uh, man, um, just glancing at the clock for a second. Um, like, I, let me just say this. We have to have a spirituality that names the trauma that's been handed down from one generation to the next. You have to have a spirituality like that. That's willing to even name it, acknowledge it, and be like, look, this wasn't right. This wasn't okay. And it's showing up now in my life, in my generation. It is not okay for it to continue and to perpetuate. We have to have a spirituality that names the trauma. And we have to resist what, what is often called spiritual compartmentalization. We have to resist spiritual compartmentalization. See, emotional immaturity is what can cause us to compartmentalize our spirituality. This is where Jesus only influences certain parts of our life. He doesn't influence all of our life. This is, you know, this is where we, we you know, are, are like mostly good. But we have those like, you know, um, off-limits areas that, that even Jesus isn't allowed access to. And I think that when we, when we allow Jesus to work on the things in us that exist beneath the surface, man, he's no longer relegated to Sunday morning, but instead he becomes the epicenter of our lives. He becomes the center of our families. And, and I think we have to resist this kind of Christianity that wants to compartmentalize. And we have to have a vision of Christ being formed in all areas of our lives. I think I got time to give you the third root. Um, so, a sacred pace, emotional health. And again, talking about the root system, I think, I think the third root at least, you know, there's many more, but I would, I would say uh, sex, sexual wholeness, number three. Um, so the opposite of sexual wholeness is sexual brokenness, Right? And this is true of so many people. It's true of people in here right now. And I think that, that you know, we're just living at a time where, you know, human sexuality is like up for discussion. And so many of us are influenced, our opinions are even developed around this by, um, you know, the experiences that we've had and the, and the kind of brokenness we have in our life around this. Um, sexual brokenness. I mean, you think about how young, uh, uh, you know, some people are, are being uh, um, sexually activated. Um, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just wild. The things that they're exposed to, the things that enter in through their minds, uh, through their eyes, like, um, there's incredible brokenness going on. Um, and that's without even getting into things like abuse and, and such. And so um, I think that the Bible teaches clearly that our bodies have to be integrated, not separated from our sexuality. And our, I'm sorry, our spirituality. That our bodies have to be integrated, not separated from our, spirit, from our um, spirituality. And when our, when our sexuality is full of hidden problems that live beneath the surface, uh, we, never, we never successfully become formed into the image of Jesus like we want to be. Man. I thought I'd get a good amen or something. Yeah. 
You can like hear a pin drop in the room. I'm just gonna drink some coffee for a second. Like I know this is I know this is tough. I know this is tough. But look at this with me. Um, look at this thought I wrote down. I think it kind of kind of summarizes this a little bit. What I'm trying to say. It says, we live in a moment where people are desperately looking for direction around how to navigate the ever-changing conversation around human sexuality. And unless the church and parents lean into this, forcing themselves to have hard conversations and do hard theological work around this subject, we will miss a moment where we could have influenced our families around sexual wholeness for generations to come. And look, here's, here's, here's the deal. I, I bet almost all of us I bet, I bet if you look at your family tree and your story, like I bet almost all of us will find sexual brokenness, story after story after story. It's everywhere, right? Like all of us, I mean, we're impacted by it in enormous ways. And you gotta have a vision of like what that's gonna look like in your family and what that's gonna look like in your life or it'll just continue to be perpetuated. It'll continue to be passed through and passed on It'll be the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, parents are often not the place where kids turn to have these kinds of conversations, right? And so I think, I think parents have not often known how to have these kinds of conversations. Most parents have not known how to integrate spirituality and sexuality, and it's awkward. It's like, I don't know, like, no one talked to me about this stuff. Like, I, you know, like, it's just, it's just uncomfortable. And, and, and so, look, if you can't talk about sexual wholeness, about having a vision of sexual wholeness in the home, that conversation will happen somewhere else, completely void of your influence on the subject. And uh, man, like we could have like an entire teaching series on this. And I know, I know I'm just touching the surface and all of that. And if you got questions on it, email me, we can talk. I, I'd love to assist, but um, look, what I'm trying to say here is that we have to become gatekeepers. We have to become gatekeepers. So what this means is that you don't let anything inside the gate of your home that has the ability to attack your family, nothing. In fact, when I was in Israel years ago, like I, I, got, to, uh, I got to go over there and, and visit different, I think I said this one of the weeks already, but I, I got to go over there and see uh, different um, uh, cities that had been sort of, like the ruins had been, had been uh, excavated and dug up and um, you could see kind of kind of the entrances into some of them, and we'd learned about like gates and how ancient gates worked, and um, and how in a lot of these these cities they would have these this path up to the gate that was like a zigzag. It was intentionally designed that way, um, trying to keep things out of the city. They would do that so that like you know um, you know with like a battering ram, you like couldn't just uh, have like like you know tons of of momentum uh, to, you know, to, to back up and, and, and run forward. In fact, you'd oftentimes turn the corner and, 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 the, door, and, and the gate would be right there. Very, very difficult to like ram the gate um, in, in, in that way. And so it's a, it's a powerful picture of like setting up the, this, this sort of like defense, this sort of um, um, difficult access to the gate of your home, to the gate of your family, to the gate of your soul, to the gate of your life. And, and like, you know, quite honestly, like the gate is, is our eyes. Um, it's, it's, you know, and those gates are letting all sorts of things through. You know, the gate is like your kid's phone. It's your TV. Uh, it's video games. It's other types of entertainment. And, and I'm not saying any of that. I'm not, not trying to say any of that's uh, wrong or should be thrown out, even though I threaten like almost every day to throw my kid's cell phones away. Um, <laughs> And I'm going to follow through sometime. I just, it's such a great thing to be able to, like, threaten. Um, uh, man, we got to become the gatekeeper. I got, I'm not telling you, like, you shouldn't have those things, and I love all that, but, like, you got to be the gatekeeper. It's your responsibility. you got to be the gatekeeper. I remember um, uh, several years ago when uh, Game of Thrones was coming to an end, uh, uh, we had heard all about it. It was all over Twitter, and I was like, oh, man, I had never seen any, any of, of, of the show. And, uh, and so... Um, everyone was like talking about how big it was, how great it was. And so then I, I, I'm like, all right, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch it. And so I, I'm going to see what this show's all about, you know, because I love that kind of medieval sort of epic, uh, you know, battle scenes and all that. And so I, I just decide, you know, kids go to bed. I'm like, Lynn's like, let's throw it on and watch it. And she falls asleep within a couple seconds. And as, as like, you know, per usual, especially with uh, the stuff she's not interested in. So um, I, I'm watching it. 
And like, if you know the very first episode, like, like it, it gets, it gets like, ah, like super uncomfortable within like a little bit. And uh, it's right at the time when my wife wakes up and she's like, what are you watching on TV right now? Uh, she says, and she says, get that crap off my TV. Absolutely not. Like, right. And, and you know what she's doing? Like one, I feel like, ah, like, but she's being a gatekeeper. She's like, absolutely not. And I, and, and I was like, man, I probably should have been more of a gatekeeper than she was. And so I'm just saying, like, you got to be a gatekeeper. I'm not telling you how intense to be about it. I'm not telling you, you know, but I, but I am saying you've got to understand that's your job to be the gatekeeper. There's three ways you can parent around sexual wholeness. Um, and, I'm, and I'm close to being done. I really am, I promise. Um, there's three ways to parent around sexual wholeness, okay? Fear. You can parent sexual wholeness through fear. This is all about, like, repression and suppression, Okay, so this is like, uh, you know, uh, yeah, like it's really bad. That's why, you know, there's a lot of kids who grow up in church, finally get married and are excited. You know, they've saved themselves and they feel like they've sinned. Like that, and they're like, it actually is a real thing because it's been taught like it's so bad um, that they don't know how, like in just the course of like a 30-minute wedding ceremony, it can all, all of a sudden be good. And it's just, it's, just, it's just complicated for some people. And so this approach of fear tends to dominate the landscape of church-going families, usually leads to hypocrisy, actually, because it's impossible expectations. Like, how do you do that? Like, how do you, how do you live this way? So then uh, the second way I think, I think people parent around sexual wholeness um, is, is ignorance. Just ignore it. And quite honestly, that's probably what happened for many of us. It was, it was just ignored. It wasn't talked about. Um, hope it works out. And you look at your life and you're like, yeah, it mostly worked out, you know. Um, like, do you really believe that? Like, you know, you're like, yeah, no one talked to me, and so I guess, like, I'm good. Like, I guess it worked out okay. Like, do you really believe that it worked out okay for you? <laughs> like, I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't know your story necessarily. Um, but if you want to sit and talk about this, like, uh, just kidding. Um, but, like, honestly, like, like I, think, I, think, I think very few of us would say that it really worked out well. And, and uh, you know, we're like, it's too, too uncomfortable. No one talked to me about this. I don't know how to do it. We can ignore it. And then, or, or the, third, the third thing you can do here is like, man, you can, when you parent around sexual wholeness, is you can actually have a vision. So you're not, you're, right, you're not, you're not like motivated out of fear or ignorance or just like, yeah, let's ignore it. But there's a vision for how our bodies are to be integrated with our spirituality and that sexual wholeness is about surrendering our bodies to the way of Jesus, that we truly believe that our bodies are not our own, that we've been bought with a price, that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, right? And our bodies are not something to abuse or to take lightly, right? That they are the temple of the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. And so I know, look, this can feel like a lot. Like, would he stop talking about sex? Like, okay, I'm about to stop. Um, I get it. And I know that it can feel like a lot. Like, like you know, you got to walk out of here and bear an enormous burden. Like, how do I do? Where do I even begin? Like, how do I even start a sacred pace? And how do I, man, I got to go, like, get into therapy and deal with emotional health. And, like, now he's telling me, like, oh, cow, like, all this sexual brokenness. Like, what do I do? I get it. I get it. I get it. So I'm going to close like this. There's a verse in Colossians that has ministered to me deeply uh, in recent weeks. And um, Colossians 1 15 through 17 says this. It says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. So in other words, if you want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I invite you guys up. In the uh, Dominican journal, Charles Rooney writes about how in the heart of midtown, midtown Manhattan lies a juxtaposition of cosmic irony. Um, in New York City, Rockefeller Center, there's an iconic statue of Atlas, you can uh, throw this up there. Um, you guys, most of you are probably familiar with this uh, image, uh, this, this uh, statue of Atlas over here, and where he's holding the weight of the world on his shoulders. Uh, many of you have seen this in person, maybe, or you've seen it on TV. Um, very, very, very well known. And I know 
that for some of you, especially talking through this message and just when you think about your life in general, um, some of you might actually just feel like this. You know, like, man, it's a lot. I don't know how to even get through. I don't know how to carry it all. As you consider your family or the many different things you're trying to navigate in this broken world, But what's fascinating to me about this statue of Atlas um, that I read about uh, in the Dominican Journal um, is that on three sides, three sides, Atlas is surrounded by investment banks, law firms, and media companies. But directly across from Fifth Avenue, Atlas stares at St. Patrick's Cathedral, which is right here. So every day, all day staring at St. Patrick's Cathedral. He's got the weight of the world on his back. He's staring at St. Patrick's Cathedral. And inside this famous cathedral, there is actually a statue of Jesus as a little boy. You can show that picture. It may be difficult to see, but there's this little statue of Jesus, maybe no more than five years old. And, uh, And he's shown to be holding the world effortlessly in his hand. See this? This little globe? Little five-year-old Jesus. He's just holding the world like, no, like nothing. No big deal. And it's, it's a powerful image or picture to see like, like this, this, I mean, just shredded, ripped, like, like Atlas with the world on his shoulders, but he's struggling. And you see Jesus, five years old, just, yeah. It ain't no thing. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about this image of Jesus right now. I want you to apply it to whatever is going on, whatever's heavy, whatever's a lot, whatever you don't have an answer for. And I want you to just let the pressure and the weight come off. This is, this is the good news. This is what he promises. He promises to carry it because he's way stronger than we are. He is before all things. Listen to me. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Would you just stand with me as we close? Would you close your eyes for a minute, bow your heads as we get ready to pray? Um, It's time to let the pressure and the weight just come off. Time to let the pressure and the weight come off. Just take a couple more minutes with me here. Joshua chapter one, there's this uh, very famous interaction between God and Joshua. At the very beginning of Joshua one, God speaks to Joshua and he tells him, he says, Moses, my servant is dead. And what he's telling Joshua here is he's basically telling him now it's your turn. He's telling Joshua that this previous generation has come and gone, and now it's your turn. And now I'm anointing you. And now I'm empowering you. And now I'm committed to using you in your generation like I used Moses in the previous generation. And if you're here today, like, first of all, you need to understand that like this is your moment, this is your time, that there's calling and there's destiny on your life. It's time to rise up to the moment and realize that God is choosing you, that you're a royal priesthood, that you're a holy nation, that you're set apart by God in this moment, in this time, to make a, 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 a difference for generations to come. And if you just would say, Pastor Jordan, like in my family right now, we are under attack. In my family right now, there is struggle. In my family right now, it feels like the weight of the world is on our back and we need to somehow figure out how to take this weight and transfer it over to five-year-old baby Jesus. Can I see your hand this morning? I wanna just see your hand, I wanna pray for you. I wanna encourage you right now. Like he is the answer and he is the way. He can handle it. He's good enough, he's big enough, he's strong enough. He's got bigger shoulders than you do. He's stronger, he's smarter, he knows a way through. He's got so much creativity. He has a creative miracle right now that he wants to release into your life. So God, I ask in Jesus' name right now 
for your divine protection around every family under the sound of my voice. Every person who raised their hand right now. God, I, 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 I just, I recognize where the enemy is at work, where it feels like he is lurking, where it feels like he's trying to disrupt and tear down marriage covenants, where he's trying to disrupt and tear down family units all together, where there is great discouragement, where there is frustration. Lord, I, I even pray right now for your supernatural peace and, and refreshment to come to those who are burnt out, who have no more fight left in them, who just are, are, are not sure they can continue to go on. Lord, I ask for this weight, God, that you would come alongside right now. You'd put it on your shoulders. You'd carry it. You'd take it. God, you'd help them understand that this was never intended for them to carry in the first place. And in Jesus' name, right now, would you begin to bring healing and wholeness and restoration? Oh, God. I pray that we would rise up as your chosen people, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, as a people set apart, ready to be the ones that you have created and called us to be. And I ask God for generational legacy to come out of this room. Right now, God, in the areas of, of uh, pace, in terms of our emotional health, God, I pray that there are things that have been true of us would, would no longer be true of us, things that have been true of our ancestors those in prior generations in our family tree would stop and be cut off now, not to, not to move along, not to perpetuate any longer. And God, in the area of sexual wholeness, God, I pray that any brokenness that exists, any brokenness that exists sexually in, in our generation, in our life, in prior generations, in generations past, God, we wanna cut that off right now. Jesus, now, do the work, go to the deep place, and provide healing. This is not something, God, that we want to pass on to, to generations that are going to follow. And so, Lord, we come before you right now surrendered and come and do your work. Come, Holy Spirit, and do your work. Come, Holy Spirit, and do your deep work in us right now. Change us, mold us, shape us, make us new, make us the people that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.